Well, welcome to Fieldstone. If we haven't met, my name is Justin, and I appreciate the team doing that song because it really uh, is a, a great uh, lead into our topic for today. If you have not been with us, the series that we're in is on the Sermon on the Mount, which is a set of chapters right in the middle of the book of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And basically what we've seen is that Jesus uh, has gathered his disciples together and there's people looking in and and listening in, kind of like uh, a camera in the middle of a locker room speech before a big game. And he's explaining to his disciples, this is what it looks like to follow me. This is what it looks like to bring about the kingdom here and now on earth. Now, at the same time, this is something you're supposed to be doing now, but it's also uh, a foreshadowing of what will come when, when God brings his kingdom in all of its glory. This is what life will be like. This is what life should be like. And so he starts to flip the script and he hits the Beatitudes and talks about how those who have been oppressed, those who have been pushed down, those who have been devalued, they will be lifted up, they will be set apart, and they will be valued in a special way. And it's very different. And he challenges us, based on what he's bringing about in his kingdom, to be a light to the world, to be a walking representation of him and of his kingdom. And then he breaks it down even further. We talked about how uh, he challenges us to have a faith, to have a righteousness that goes beyond that of the Pharisees. And what he meant was, our faith is more than just following rules. Our faith is more than just doing enough right things to balance the scales or maybe be better than the guy next to us. It's always been about the heart. It's always been about Christ. And so he's bringing us back around. And last week, we started to get into some of the practical ramifications of what it looks like to live out the kingdom. We talked about anger and murder. And today, now maybe there was some tension last week if you have uh, some anger issues or some things that you're trying to work through. But today, I think, is when the real tension starts. It's one of the first big topics. And I warned you last week, I said, if you're going to skip a Sunday, this is the Sunday because we're going to have an interesting time together. And it's a tension. Um, that we're talking about marriage. We're talking about divorce and remarriage and some adultery. Um, and Jesus hits this because as much as that's an issue in our time, it was an issue in Jesus' time. It was an issue going back all the way to Old Testament times. Um, and it's important for us to look at it. And it's going to be tough today. It's going to be maybe a little frustrating It's all too personal for so many of us because even if you're here and you've never experienced divorce personally, I would say almost all of us have had some touch, some experience, some exposure to marriage, divorce, remarriage, and all that goes with that somewhere in our circle of family or friends. And so it's a difficult topic, but whether you're on your first marriage or second marriage or third marriage, somewhere between marriages, contemplating marriage, we have to discover Jesus' view on marriage because ultimately he's the one that created it. And we're the ones that have been sent out to carry his message and be representatives of him and his truth. And so we can make our own rules, we can change the rules, we can interpret rules, we can share opinions, we can attempt to change what it really is and what it was created to be. We can soften the realities of what he says as much as we want. But ultimately, what Jesus says about marriage, what he says about lust, what he says about adultery, That should be our starting point for how we understand marriage because he's the one that gets to define it. And here's how difficult his teaching is. Okay, If if you're kind of walking in and and you're like, oh, what does Jesus say about marriage? It's difficult, and it's so difficult. Look at it. He teaches on it in the Sermon on the Mount. It comes up again in Matthew 19. And look at what his disciples say in response to what Jesus says about marriage. Matthew 19. They say, listen, If this is the truth, if this is what you're expecting of us, then I don't think we even want to get married. (laughs) Now remember, we're talking about his disciples who were teenage guys, 
20-something-year-old guys, guys who were anticipating a family, anticipating marriage and all that goes with that, and they're saying, yikes, if this is the heart of the teaching behind marriage, maybe we don't want any part of it. And I think it's important to understand because that's how they felt when they heard his teaching, there should be some tension that we feel if we're properly interpreting and reading Jesus' teaching on this. So if you find yourself feeling tension this morning, you're not alone. If you find yourself feeling tension this morning, that's good because that means we're at least getting close to what Jesus is trying to get us to capture on this because he is raising the bar. He is flipping the script on what our culture and their culture was saying about marriage and how they were handling marriage. And so we'll, we're going to hit Matthew 19. We'll be there a little bit today, but I want to start in the Sermon on the Mount, which our series is based on. Um, I'm going to read a couple sections there, uh, uh, picking up where we left off last week. Um, and I, and I, just so you know, this sermon, um, uh, we did it in the first service, and it only took 75 minutes to get through it. So don't worry. Uh, we'll get you out before lunch. Um, it's just one of those topics where um, kind of the first half of this is going to be what the Bible says. Um, it's going to be some context, a little bit of historical stuff, so we can really capture what is Jesus saying. And then the second half, and I'll let you know when I'm making that transition, the second half is going to be, what does Justin say? <laughs> and that's a very important distinction, okay? So we'll make that distinction, and you'll kind of understand when we get there. Uh, but just the nature of this topic, um, normally I speak... Uh, uh, if you're newer to Fieldson, I speak 25 to 35 minutes. Most of the time, I'm on the shorter end of that range. And that represents about two and a half pages of notes. Today, I've got seven. Uh, so uh, now, I'll be, I will be tied to the notes a little more, so there's not as many stories and, and kind of running off on rabbit trails. But there's different kinds of rabbit trails because this is one of those topics. It's not, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't spend more time on it than the other topics. Um, he doesn't elevate this issue above the other issues. He addresses it in a similar fashion to the other issues. Um, but it's one of those issues that is such a huge cultural topic that I think it's important for this particular one. Number one, I'm going to stick with my notes a little bit more because it's not something I want to venture off and say something stupid. Um, but it's also one of those topics um, that it requires venturing down a couple rabbit trails. It requires a little bit of the extra detail, whereas some topics you can kind of narrow it down to one thing and say, oh, we'll get to that other part later. This one I think we need to hit all the parts, especially when it comes to our application of it. Um, so maybe a little longer, hopefully not, um, but, it's, but it's important. It, it's an important tension that we need to hit, um, and so that's where we're going to go with it. So uh, Matthew 5, verse 27 is where we'll start. We'll kind of read through a bunch of verses and then come back a little bit. Um, so Matthew 5, 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, and remember we hit this last week where a lot of these topics, he says, listen, you've, you've heard this. Either you've read this in the Old Testament or you've heard interpretations on an Old Testament teaching. You've heard about a tradition based on an Old Testament teaching. But here's what I tell you. And he comes with authority and says, this is what it means. This is the truth. This is the heart behind the teaching. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, 
Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So there's a lot to digest there, and there's some difficult stuff. You got body parts getting cut off. You got eyes getting gouged out. Right? He's calling things adultery that maybe they didn't think of as adultery. And some of us are probably thinking, I'm not sure I want to be a Christian anymore. This is difficult. Right? There's some crazy stuff. But we'll go back and for some context. Um, first, verse 31. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, the, the, the context that Jesus is stepping into here goes all the way back to Moses. See, back in the Old Testament days, Moses started seeing marriage becoming something that it wasn't supposed to be. And so he created this certificate of divorce. This was something uh, that was offered in some cases that would protect a marriage from becoming a worthless sham. Okay, it protected a woman from being cast aside for any little reason. Because what was happening is the husbands had the power. Men had set themselves up with the authority and the power and all the influence. And so what they were doing, they were using that influence to just kick their wives out and start fresh. And so this certificate protected the woman in that event from becoming an outcast and from being uh, in a situation where she had no rights. So a woman, like her, her ability to thrive and survive and have any rights was found under her father and then under her husband. And so if she is kicked out of a marriage, she has nowhere to turn and she can't show up to, uh, her, back to her dad's house, to a brother's house, to an uncle's house without the certificate of divorce proving that she wasn't just fleeing her marriage, proving that she wasn't just in the wrong. And so it gave her some legal rights in the midst of being kicked out of her marriage. And we'll, uh, we'll get back to that a little bit later. But in later days, as Pharisees and religious leaders started interpreting that passage about the certificate of divorce, they started adding, as always, their interpretations and their opinions into how that thing could play out. And so you had opinions that ran the entire spectrum of how that, that teaching could be, could be practically applied. Some said it would only apply if the spouse was unfaithful. So if the wife's cheating or she's running around her husband, he can give her a certificate of divorce and end the marriage. But some allowed it if the husband's food got messed up before dinner. Some allowed for that divorce to happen if he simply found someone he liked better and his wife couldn't measure up to the new person, he could kick her out, give her a certificate of divorce, and send her on her way. Some allowed it for pretty much any reason at all, and we'll get to that. Some cultures, that one included, and even some today, all you have to do is look at your wife and say three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and it's over. And so divorce had become an easy and acceptable option when it came to marriage. Sound familiar? So that's what Jesus is stepping into. So Matthew 5, 32, and he says, But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, now the word that's used there refers to sexual sin, but also can refer to just some general immorality. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. He makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So at this point, I can see the disciples saying, and the people listening are like, okay, Jesus, this is starting to not make sense. Like, like we can kind of figure out that the cutting off your hand thing or the gouging out your eye. It's weird. It's gruesome, but we'll take it. But here's the thing with, like, Jesus, adultery is when you cheat on your spouse, right? It's when you hook up with someone who's not your husband or your wife. So if someone's divorced, 
they can't really commit adultery because there's no longer a husband or a wife to cheat on. And Jesus, I don't know if you thought about this, but that first marriage is over, right? Like, this is a new marriage. So everything that's happening now is happening within the framework of marriage, which is good. It's just a different marriage than the first one. And Jesus, through this passage, is basically saying the same thing he said about anger last week. Listen, based on how you've grown up, based on what you're used to, based on what you're seeing in culture, yeah, you might believe that this is something different than what I'm saying, but maybe there's something about marriage that you don't understand. And in the midst of this, the Pharisees are listening in. And these are guys who are looking for a reason to prove to people that Jesus is not who he said he was. They want to trap Jesus. They want to prove he's teaching against the Bible, teaching against Moses, um, prove that he's not from God. And so they're listening in on this topic. They go away, huddle up, come up with a plan, and come back to Jesus. And that's where we find him in Matthew chapter 19 with this topic coming up again. So in Matthew 19, 3, it says, Some of the Pharisees came to him to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now that every reason thing, that's them adding to it. The part in the Old Testament about the certificate of divorce doesn't say anything about every reason, but this is these guys adding to it. Um, And so they're basically asking, okay, tell us when divorce is okay to happen. We want some specific practical times. And they knew, just like Jesus knew, and just like we know, the, the opinions ran the whole gamut. But the Pharisees wanted to prove that they, they wanted to see if he's going to agree with Moses or go a different direction, and then they've got him. So Jesus gives them the, his answer. He says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh? So Jesus says, you like to look at the current circumstances, like what am I currently experiencing? What, what are the circumstances I need to be experiencing in order to be justified in going this route? What are the loopholes that I can pursue that will make this okay? And Jesus says, that's fine. But I need to take you back to the beginning because there's something you don't understand. The reason you're looking for loopholes is there's something about marriage that you're missing or forgetting. And so I'm going to take you back to the beginning. And he reminds them about Adam and Eve and what God created way back at the beginning. And then in verse 6, he he takes it further and says, Those two are no, no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I'm sure you've heard that at a wedding somewhere. And he says, They are united They are one flesh. Two becomes one. And so there's more to marriage than a license and a honeymoon. And because there's more to marriage than a license and a honeymoon, there's more to divorce than lawyers and paperwork. And Jesus says, okay, Pharisees, okay, those looking for a loophole, those looking for a good reason to get away with what they want to do, what you're really asking me is, under what circumstances can one become two? And he says, don't attempt to unone what God has made one. See, we, we immediately want to go to the practical stuff, right? What, what are the reasons? What are the justifications? It's, it's like that with every topic. If, if we spent this whole time talking about lust and things like that, we, you have questions with teenagers, adults, like, how far is too far? How, how close can I get to the line be, before I cross over from okay to not okay? What's, when am I tipping the scales in the bad side compared to tipping them in the good side. How far can I get away with this? 
And Jesus recognizes that. He knows the reality. He knows that he's aware of the practical realities that we live with on this earth. He's, He's aware that it's a difficult standard to achieve that he is setting up for us. But he says, for right now, you need to understand and accept what I'm saying, that if you try to undo a marriage, if you try to unwind what has been wound together, it's going to be very difficult and very complicated and very painful, and there's going to be consequences. Because you're trying to take one and make it two. And so Jesus is almost saying, listen, you're asking me if and when divorce is permissible. When is it allowed? But I'm not even sure it's possible, let alone permissible. And so Jesus says, this is, this is why I say you're making yourself and your spouse adulterers. Because maybe you recognize a divorce, and maybe the state recognizes a divorce, but maybe God doesn't recognize a divorce. And at this point, the Pharisees are frustrated because their situation is backfiring again. Every time they try to catch him in something, he flips it around on them. And they say in verse 7, well, well then why, why did Moses command that a man can give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus, we can see it in the Old Testament. He allows for it. And Jesus said, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. In verse 8, he says, uh, Moses permitted you divorce, to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. He says, you know the history. You can read. He knows that they have the Old Testament memorized. He knows that they know history. And he knows that they know that the men in their culture were wreaking havoc on this marriage thing that God had created. With their authority, with their power that they had given themselves, they were sending their women away for any and every reason. They, he, they were putting them on the street with no rights, no legal standing, no way to survive. They were godless men. They were rejecting of God's way, and they were rejecting of God's standard. And so Moses gave the certificate to protect the women, to protect their culture, to protect marriage, to protect it from men whose hearts were hard towards marriage, towards their wives, and their hearts were hard towards God. And he finishes verse 8. says, it was not this way from the beginning. Never meant to be this way. Divorce was never meant to be a part of the equation. But divorce came about as a concession to deal with the destruction of marriage that was happening because men were turning it into a joke. In verse 9, Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So you may think that you've unwon what is one, but Jesus indicates that God doesn't think so. And even if you have a certificate in your hand and you're the innocent party, you've put yourself in a difficult situation because you cannot unone what God has made one. And that's when we get back to Matthew 19.10 where the disciple says, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, we don't want any part of it. We'll just hang with our boys the rest of our lives. This is difficult teaching because divorce is brutal. It's against God's design. It results from from sin in one or both people's lives, and it's a slap in the face of God's love and his persistence and his pursuit of us and his forgiveness in the face of all opposition. And so Jesus' goal, just like throughout the, the entire Sermon on the Mount, it's to take things back to the original heart of the command. As we've already talked about in recent weeks, he's trying to protect our faith from being all about following rules. He's trying to protect human value from being murdered by our anger. And he's trying to protect marriage and all of its symbolism from becoming a joke. 
This isn't about making marriage a temporary relationship status. It's not about giving everyone a mulligan or a reset button. It's about taking marriage back to what it's supposed to be, and that's a really big deal. But that feels really harsh. It feels like he's, like, almost like we're picking on divorced people this morning. Like, and it kind of puts, puts all of us, it puts you in, a, in an awkward, a difficult, even kind of a guilty position. But what we can't forget is the big picture of what we're looking at. Can't forget the context of the entire Sermon on the Mount, really the entire context of Scripture, where this is a standard to strive for. This is a final destination that God will bring about when his kingdom comes. And part of that, the standard exists, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the standard exists to show us how lost we are, how broken we are, how incapable of meeting the standard we are. And yet at the same time, Jesus shows us in the midst of that how saved we are and how forgiven we are. In John chapter 8, you've probably heard the story of the woman caught in adultery and she's brought before Jesus. And I have to imagine, in light of what we read here, it was probably another situation where the Pharisees were trying to catch Jesus and trap him. They've probably heard him teach on marriage and divorce and remarriage. And so what do they do? They bring a woman to him and give him an opportunity to double down on this. Bring this woman. And this is a chance for Jesus to say, I've said it before, I'll say it again. It's adultery and it's sin and you have no place in the kingdom. This is a chance for him to do that. And what does he do instead? He says, here I am. I am God in the flesh. And I forgive you. I love you. But he still takes her back to the beginning, right? He takes her back to the foundation, the truth of what what he created her for, for what he wants for her life and her marriage and her family. She wasn't doing things the right way. She wasn't doing things the kingdom way. And it's created some brokenness and consequences in her life. And it creates that in our lives. But Jesus looks down and says, I forgive you. And now you know the truth. Now you recognize the truth. So I forgive you. Don't do it again. So there's plenty of examples that allow us to understand that this is not about condemnation. It's simply about recognizing the life that God has called us to. This is a perfect standard. It's what we should be striving for. It's what things will be in the end. But we're not supposed to look down on each other for falling short of that because we all do it all the time. But at the same time, it is the standard. And there's no exception clause for the standard of anger and murder. There's no exception clause for the standard of purity and adultery. There's no loophole that gets us out of honoring our father and mother. There's no exception for caring for widows and orphans. And there's nothing that frees us from the command to keep our tongue from evil and our lips from keeping lies. And there's no exception clause that makes divorce okay. But it doesn't mean there's no relief and no grace and no Jesus to step in and heal the situation. And as we step into kind of the second part of this message this morning, this is where a lot of my tension comes from. I even came, like, still dealing with it last night, trying to tie this all together because I was feeling like where I'm going to go with, this is what Justin says, where where I felt that section was going felt in many ways contrary to what we read in the Sermon on the Mount. And I was struggling with that, like, and, and it's, and it's, and that's why this is kind of an important morning because in many ways, it's one of those topics that people are going to ask about and need to know about. And, and I had to wrestle and I had to deal with this tension because in many ways, just the way things are and leadership and church stuff, 
the way I feel about it is kind of how Fieldstone feels about it. And so thinking through, how do we practically apply this? My, my tension was, I'm naturally a black and white kind of a guy. Like if I see it, that's it. It's the truth. This is what we do. This is what we not do. It's really easy for me to just kind of get into that mode. And so I know what this says in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. But then I realize that the tension is because I'm not, not looking at it with the scope of entire scripture and of all of Jesus' life and teaching. And what we see throughout scripture is that, yes, the truth of marriage is that you cannot unone what God has made one. But God can make whole what we've made unwhole. And God can take the broken and ripped in half and make it new again. And God can take the unclean and make it clean again. And so no matter the brokenness, no matter the pain that you might have experienced, no matter the sin that might have been in your life at one point or another, God can heal you and he can heal your marriage and he can heal your family. And so with that, we progress into the Justin part, okay? Bible part is what God says. Because here's the thing. This has been read and digested for 2,000 years now. And if you put 100 pastors in a room and 100 scholars, 100 counselors, and you gave them the same passage, they would all apply it a little bit differently and have walk away with different opinions. So the rest of this is me talking. Based on what I see, what I understand from these passages, and how I think we need to apply this going forward. Because <clears throat> like I said, I see a lot of friends out here right now that are divorced and remarried and trying to navigate these waters. And, and, and we will have couples come through our doors in the years to come, even now, who are in marriages that feel like they're about to end. So what do we say? What, what's our application of what Jesus is teaching here? First, first couple, I think, the first two steps apply to every situation. Every situation we're struggling with, marriage or otherwise. Number one, we need to embrace the truth. And that's being able to say, Jesus, I believe you. It's tough. I'm in deep. My marriage stinks. I'm already divorced. I'm on my second marriage. I'm on my third marriage. But Jesus, regardless of my current circumstances, regardless of my context, I embrace and I believe everything that you're telling me about the nature of marriage. I trust you. I believe you. And I think this is a big area that we've gotten off track in Christianity is we, we try to reject or avoid things that are true simply because it's uncomfortable or inconvenient. But we have to embrace the truth as truth, the truth that marriage is one man and one woman forever, that within marriage two become one, and that oneness cannot be undone. Jesus, I accept that. I believe that's true. And that's the beginning because that's the beginning of everything with God, right? It's, it's saying, God, you know better than me. You you are God and I'm not. I've heard what you're saying and I believe it. You have to embrace the truth. And then following up on that is number two, confess your sin. So Jesus, I believe you and Jesus, I screwed up. That's the order of things. You are God and I'm not. I believe what you say. I accept your standard as truth and admittedly, I've failed to meet your standard. The only way to experience the grace of God is to admit your need for it. And guess what? You're in the same boat as all the rest of us. 
if you're sitting out there and you're divorced or you're divorced and remarried and you're living this type of a situation, you're in the same boat. Because Matthew 5, 27 to 30 that we read at the beginning seems to indicate that your desire for anyone other than your spouse is also adultery. It's the same thing. It's an attack on God's plan for marriage and purity and oneness. So if you're sitting out there and you're like, well, I'm in my first marriage. Well, congratulations, adulterer. We all stand in the need of grace and forgiveness. And so let me make this clear. Your sin, your past, your present does not leave you as a tattered, defiled gift left in a heap with diminished value and purpose. It doesn't matter if your thing is anger or dishonesty or greed or gossip or stealing, mouthing off to your mom and dad, lust, addiction, divorce, adultery, premarital sex, whatever. We all fall short of God's standard. It's not right. It's not good. But what we read in Romans 5.20 is that where sin is great, grace abounds all the more. Where the need is great, where the pain is great, where the brokenness is great, where the baggage is great, when those things are great, God shows up that much greater in our lives. So what if I'm divorced and remarried? I would say what Jesus said to the woman in, in John chapter 8, go and sin no more. Romans 8, 1 that we talked about a couple weeks ago says there is no condemnation, zero condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Everything that we've done, everything that we will do has been paid for. There is no condemnation. So from this point forward, do marriage God's way. Put Jesus first because that relationship is, is the thing from which everything else flows. Practice mutual submission. It's healthy interactions, healthy roles within your marriage, serving each other, sacrificing for each other. And as you're doing that, model it to your kids. Model it to your grandkids. Let them see you learning and growing. Let them see you succeed. Let them see you fail so that they can learn from it as well. This one, the one you're in now, is forever. So do whatever it takes. Okay, so what if I'm divorced and I would love to remarry someday? I would say experience restoration and new wholeness. Now, it's possible God may ask you to remain single the rest of your life. And if he does, you need to obey. That may be your cross to bear on his behalf. He might have another road for you. He might, might ask you to serve or minister or use your gifts as a single adult. But I would say this. <clears throat> You should not, you cannot enter into a new marriage carrying the weight of your brokenness. If you're divorced, you've been broken in half. And so your second marriage is no longer one plus one equals one. Your second marriage because, becomes one plus broken equals broken. But here's what we know. We've talked about this in light of our mission of transforming family trees, that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but God can pick it up and move it. And so we apply that same truth to this situation. God can make whole what we have made unwhole. God can make clean what we have made unclean. And so pursue the help you need. Allow for the time that you need. Leave room for God that you need. Time for him to make you whole again. And this is not months. This is years. This is not just you figuring things out. This is receiving help and input and love from family and friends and getting counseling, receiving wisdom when you need it, receiving rebuke when you need it. 
It's making a new commitment to your walk with Jesus and experiencing that on a level you've never experienced before, where it's you and Jesus. And until it's you and Jesus, there can be no third party. And you shouldn't get married again until you'd be okay with never being married again. And then the last big one. What if I'm in a messed up situation and I desire a divorce? First thing I'd say is every situation is different. So many different situations and contexts and, 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 you know, some that it's just a bunch of immaturity and selfishness and boredom and looking for an easy way. But some, some there's cheating, cheating with repentance, cheating without repentance. Some there's abuse of some kind involved. Some there's little kids. Sometimes there's older kids. So there, there's no across-the-board diagnosis or path or permission to bail on your marriage. So if you were to come to me and ask this question, we're going to talk through all the details. There's no set thing to say, this is where it's okay. This is where it's not okay. This is where you can feel good about yourself. And this, you should feel guilty. Not, there is, that doesn't exist. There's some things I would recommend, though. If you're in that situation, if someone that you love is in that situation, pray for a miracle. If our God can raise the dead, he can certainly save a marriage. Get on your knees Get on your face before God and beg him for a miracle. Pray for your marriage. Pray for your husband. Pray for your wife. And pray every day. In the midst of that, strongly encourage counseling. Marriage counseling and individual counseling and maybe family counseling. Let someone highly trained and gifted speak into your situation from a neutral perspective. Here's the thing, guys. It's 2019. It's not weird anymore. Okay? Going to counseling is fine. It's totally normal, all right? It's important. In the midst of that, if necessary, for safety or maybe pursuit of health, separate. Make time and space where you can patiently and prayerfully and safely wait on God to begin his healing. And then, if the covenant is broken beyond repair, if a spouse's heart is hardened towards Jesus and what he's called us to, maybe we can talk about the D word but it's never easy, it's never simple, it's a case-by-case basis, and it's only when, for whatever reason, a miracle hasn't been provided. Divorce is a last resort meant to protect the innocent from a sham of a marriage, to protect them from a dangerous marriage, to protect them in which, a marriage in which the covenant has been broken, repentance isn't coming, and God is being mocked through the process. Jesus said, Moses permitted it because your hearts were hard. What he meant by that is when, when someone's heart is hard, it's not capable of repentance. It's not capable of forgiveness. It's, it's not capable of doing things God's way. And so basically, when someone is turning their marriage covenant into a joke, and they don't give a crap about what God thinks anyways, turn them over to, the, over to their sin and let the innocent move on. But even then, even then I feel that tension even saying that because marriage is supposed to be this beautiful picture of our relationship with Christ, and divorce tears that picture to shreds. And so on one hand, is an unrepentant, abusive spouse a beautiful picture of our relationship with Christ? No, of course not. Is an unrepentant, unfaithful spouse a beautiful picture of that? No, of course not. But on the other hand, what about a wounded spouse who's forgiving and long-suffering and is patiently and prayerfully waiting on the one they love to miraculously return home and fall in love again? That's a beautiful picture. But sometimes it doesn't happen.
So the last thing I would say to this, and this is for all of us, no matter what your marriage situation is, fight for your marriage. Do and spend, especially if you can sense that it's struggling, do and spend whatever it takes to address the issues at the deepest levels. This is more important than anything else you have going on. Quit whatever you need to quit to make room for this. Cut back on work hours. Quit your golf league. Cut your cable TV. Go to a flip phone for a while. But Justin, what about balance? I need balance in my life. If your marriage is struggling, you've lost your freedom to choose balance. You have to take a break from choosing fun and choosing the big game choosing your friends. If your marriage is struggling, you need to be ridiculously unbalanced in the direction of fighting for your marriage. You're supposed to be willing to die for your wife and you can't give up your iPhone? You want to talk about the love you have for your kids? Don't tell me you're too busy to give a couple nights a week to figuring this thing out. Go away together without your kids. Go out on dates without your kids. Pray together. Talk about God's stuff together. Confess to each other. Forgive each other. Fight for your marriage. As tough as these verses are to look at, honestly, if you do research, for the first three, four, five hundred years of Christianity after Jesus went back to heaven, these verses didn't create a problem. They took them very Literally, and Christian marriages were so uniquely strong that it became one of the big draws for people in the ancient world to Christianity, especially for women. Marriage was so permanent. It was such a picture of our relationship with God. It became a curiosity among the secular world. Because you're talking about the Roman world where they'd basically given up on the value of marriage. They're thinking, I I got a wife, but I can have slaves. I can do whatever I want with them, and if I have kids with them, I can do whatever I want with those kids, and then I don't have to be bound to some woman I stopped liking a long time ago. And then here come these crazy Christians, and they say, whoa, marriage is a big deal to them. That's kind of interesting. We can get back to that. What would happen if the next generation, your kids, saw us valuing this relationship above everything else? You want to transform a family tree, we've got to do this marriage thing differently. Let's pray. God, we love you. And as always, we thank you for your word. Um, And God, as we process this, as we um, uh, think through this truth in light of our past circumstances, maybe our current circumstances, God, as we tuck this into our hearts for a later date, um, I pray that you would uh, help us to live it in the way that you want us to. God, in a way that makes our view of marriage a light to the world around us that makes our view of marriage and the way we handle our marriages a seasoning salt to a world around us that has made marriage bland and worthless. And Father, may our marriages be the kind of thing that makes people be drawn to you and drawn towards your word and drawn towards your church because of the beauty of what we're living out. In Jesus' name, amen.